From the studios of the Optimism Institute, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Burke, and in every Blue Sky episode, we'll be speaking to leaders, researchers, and thinkers whose stories and insights will remind us that there is always blue sky above. Sometimes you just have to get your head above the clouds to see it. More than in most Blue Sky episodes, a large portion of this conversation with my guest, Ein Vu Sawyer, is in the form of personal history. The story Ein tells is dramatic, inspiring, and in many ways crucial to understanding what makes Ein the person she is today. She was born and raised in South Vietnam, and as the war there was quickly and chaotically coming to a close, she and her family were some of the lucky ones to get out alive and come to America. This experience left her with a tremendous sense of gratitude and a desire to give back that still defines her today. Ein Vu Sawyer has spent decades in leadership roles driving impactful solutions for communities at risk. Over the years, she's created pathways for successful entrepreneurship and community integration for immigrants, refugees, and ethnic minorities while helping them to maintain their unique cultural identities. As you'll hear, today she's the founder and CEO of Ein 55, a clothing company that provides economic development opportunities to women refugees in the U.S. and overseas. She's also the founder of Cooperatives Without Borders and co-founder of ArtsBridge International. Ein received her MBA at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology Sloan School of Management and recently completed the Harvard Advanced Leadership Initiative Fellowship. I hope you enjoy this conversation with the remarkable Ein Vu Sawyer as much as I did. Ein Vu Sawyer, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. Hello. Thanks for being with me today. You have led such a remarkable life, uh, nearly 50 years of which has been here in the U.S., but I don't think people can fully understand what makes you you without first hearing how it was that you came to this country during the incredible chaos of April 1975 and the final days of the U.S. presence in Vietnam. So I'd like to start there if we could. Uh, so I grew up in a really wonderful family uh, with my parents and the six of us all together. And I'm at the middle, third child. And um, we live uh, the a border of uh, Saigon and another town called Zadig. And uh, about the time when I had to leave Vietnam abruptly, uh, I was a second year medical student. Vietnam, uh, uh, Saigon fell very quickly. None of us could ever imagine that we could have lost the war because we were supported by Americans, you know, by right. the USA uh, at that time. We believed the USA and the world too, not just us, believed that uh, the U.S. Uh, was the most powerful nation on earth. And so, but I think it took only days for uh, the North Vietnamese to take over South Vietnam. And uh, I remember when I was in my uh, classes, uh, a lot of my classmates were called uh, to leave the classroom, and we never seen them again, because I think they, uh, their family, figured out that 
they had to leave the country immediately. And so we we didn't have any connection with um, the, um, the Americans or the government or anyone to allow us to have passage out, out of Vietnam. The airports were completely uh, destroyed by bombs and uh, people, and we didn't have any uh, connection with people who have boats or ships. And we didn't live by the, 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 uh, the coast. So we didn't know that there are many, many big boats, small boats, even uh, live raft left Vietnam at that time. Wow. We were in, in the middle of Saigon. Incredible. And, and your father, I've heard you say that your father was actually a prisoner in the Hanoi Hilton at one point. Yes, he was. Can you believe that? No. Well, especially that he escaped. Yes. So can you give us some context there? Why was he there and how in the world did he escape? Uh, so this is uh, a story told to me by my mother. And then when, we wrote, when I wrote the book, A Song of Saigon, uh, I went back to Vietnam to interview my aunts, uh, who were who uh, were my father's sister and also my mother's sisters. Uh, he fought against um, the French with uh, Ho Chi Minh. Actually, yes. he trained guerrillas uh, in the mountains, in, in, in the jungle, for Ho Chi Minh right. fighting against the, the French. And then when the Japanese uh, uh, took over Vietnam, he was uh, arrested by the Japanese, actually. Wow. And um, the, the story was that uh, they, uh, he was transported to another location, maybe to be executed. And uh, his comrade got wind of it. So when the, the truck that left uh, the Hilton, there was uh, uh, one of them dressed up as if they were selling limes. Uh-huh. And and they bumped into the truck and the limes was all over the place. And that's how my father got uh, escaped. Incredible. And then he, um, this, is, this was before he met my mom. So the rest of the story is really wonderful. So he, he said that he uh, took shelters in, Markets, stalls at night, they close the markets and he just moved from market to market. And then finally he reached his uncle's uh, village. But the French and the, I mean, the Japanese continued to to um, chase him. So he actually uh, dove into a pond in Vietnam in the village. To this day, many homes, each home has a pond to this day for fish you know, raising fish and also using the water for for the gardens. And um, he breathed, he used uh, uh, the stalks of the lily flowers to breathe. Incredible. Yeah. Huh. And then uh, at night, he, he, he left the pond and he took shelter at, at, my, at his uncle's house. And his uncle was a pastor. And that particular night, he had a Bible study. And my mom and her family went there. And my father fell in love with my mom right uh, away. Uh, that's beautiful and incredible. And and then you escaped Saigon. And, and we're going to get more to your incredible life here in the States. But to, to fully understand how appreciative and why you're so appreciative of this country, you told a wonderful story about how you were rescued from Saigon. Can you tell that for all of us? 
I don't think I was rescued uh, from Saigon in a way. Uh, we all just ran like crazy. Just, you know, it's a terrible thing to compare with what's happening right now uh, with the war, Israel and um, um, Gaza war. Uh, but actually, that news gave me nightmares. And, and actually, I didn't want to go to class today. Mm. Now that, you know, so much going on in the world, I... I don't know how to explain. Maybe I should go to, to class. Anyway, <laughs> um, uh, we just ran like crazy for the next safe place. And we, we had no idea what that was. Okay, so that um, April 30th, 1975 was when I left Vietnam. But two days before that, my dear brother, Phong Vu, who was in California that, at that time, he just got married to his wonderful wife, my sister-in-law, Donna, uh, she's American. And he knew, uh, everyone in America knew that Vietnam would be shut down very quickly. Uh, and the troop will cook, uh, you know, came back uh, to the state. And he jumped onto a Red, uh, Red Cross helicopter to uh, go back to Saigon. And at mm. that time, we have 24-hour curfew. Uh, no one could leave the house. And two nights before April 30th, uh, we heard someone rattling our gate, our metal metal gate outside of our courtyard. And my mom said, everyone lie down, lie down, you know, no talk, no noise. And the noise outside said, uh, uh, open the door, open the gate, open the gate. So my nanny said, that sounds like a, a fun. And my mom said, no, no, he's not stupid to come home now. He's safe <laughs> in America. Yeah. And then the voice outside the gate, as if he could hear us, but there's no way he could hear us. He said, Sister Hug, uh, Sister Hug, open the door. And that's wow. when, uh, uh, and he mentioned his name. And my mom fainted. Oh my and my, my nanny came, I went out to open the door and let him in. There's a lot to process here. First of all, it's interesting to hear the South Vietnamese perspective that they could never imagine that the powerful United States would not be able to hang on and win the war with the North and Viet Cong. Ayn was in her second year of medical school with no idea that her life was about to turn completely upside down. And the story of her father escaping the Hanoi Hilton years prior surviving by hiding in a pond and breathing through reeds, suggests she comes from very strong stock. Likewise, her brother is incredibly loyal and courageous to come back to help save his family at such a treacherous time. It was such an unbelievable act that Ayn's own mother passed out when she realized what he had done. Now, back to Ayn's harrowing story and what her brother did next. So he took us, the next day he took us to the U.S. Embassy um, and there were thousands and thousands of people there already. And we waited there for at least, you know, half of a day. And then he, he, he went inside first and then he came out and he said, after hours of waiting for him, he said, I'm so sorry, but we have to believe, I have to leave because there's no, 
absolutely no room, no space in, in the helicopter for anyone mm. except American people. Wow. Yeah, and which is true. So if you watch that uh, video, that, that uh, documentary called Last Day in Vietnam, yes. uh, the U.S. Uh, military at that time had to leave Vietnam on that day, but on their way out by boat, by plane, by ship, by helicopters, they radioed to each other and they said, we cannot leave the, pe- the Vietnamese people who worked for us. They are dead men walking. So they diverted back to Vietnam, landed uh, on, uh, on the top of the uh, American embassy rooftop or some other secret location and along the, the coast to pick up the people who used to work for the U.S. government. And so that day when my husband, my brother heard that final news that no one could leave because uh, a servicemen already left or were leaving, he left and then um, we went home. Ein's family was Christian, and they next heard that members of their church would be protected there and prioritized for safe exit from Saigon. But the church itself was far away, and with no gas in her father's car, Ein's mother traded the food left in their home for transportation to the church. When they arrived, it was packed, and it soon became clear that there would in fact be no safety there. After a shortwave radio announcement, said that the North Vietnamese army will be taking over Saigon in a matter of hours. People then fled the church in a panic and Ein's mother was devastated. For some weird reason, I, I, had, I still had so much hope. So I told my mom that if God provided uh, bicycles and motorcycle for us to make it here, he will provide flying machines. And that's how we call uh, airplanes. Yes, yes. In, in, I, yeah. Anyway, so, uh, but we didn't dare to stay in the church by ourselves. We were the only people in the church because, you know, if the, Viet- the North Vietnamese came, they would, number one, they would not, they didn't already like religions. And as an mm. American church, we would be in trouble. So, sure. and we didn't have transportation to get back to our home. So we decided to walk home. It would take like, seven or eight hours. But when we turned the corner, we saw a huge crowd, a very big crowd, like Times Square, New Year Eve. Really? So we asked people, what's going on here? It's 24-hour curfew. How come the people are on the street? And um, they said, this is the backside of the American embassy. Uh, we, th- the day before, we were in the front side, right? And they said, the helicopters taking people off from inside the American embassy. So I stood there and the way in the back, I thought, I, I talked to God and I said, God, just, you know, a few more meters, I will be able to be on the other side of the gate and I would have life. And before I knew it, uh, we were, we, I hate to use the crowd parted, but it did part because they have to pull out some bodies People were stepped on and oh, whatever. So so we just, and before I knew it, I was right at the gate with my whole entire family. And be above the gate was barbed and American soldiers who uh, hitting people with the butt of their guns or punched people because 
uh, I didn't know that um, uh, and until later that uh, when the helicopter took off, people held on to the landing gears and the helicopters crashed. So they couldn't get people in. And But it's truly a miracle that I was I made it to as high as possible with the barbed wires around me. Mm. And in my hand, I had a, a letter uh, from my sister-in-law's family, Donna's family, and uh, saying that if anyone who helped this family uh, to make it to America, we will be responsible for them. Oh. So there were uh, an American soldier who was, I think when she, he kicked my sister in the head, she almost fell down. And, and I, I, I told, I, I don't know how to explain it to you, but that same hand, the same person reached out and pulled me in. And my wow. sister and my, my mom and my brothers, two brothers, and when I was, you know, through the barbed wire, and my father was the last one because you need someone to hoist you up, you know. Sure, sure. And the same hand or the same person that kicked my sister, pulled me in, I turned to this person and I said, please help my father. Mm. And in English, that's my, wow. I think that's the maximum English capacity <laughs> that I had. So yes. I, he leaned down and pulled my father up. Wow. So when we got into that, you know, we, we made it to the platform on top, our clothes were completely shredded to ribbons because we were yanked through the sure. barbed wire. So we jumped off the, the the platform and I saw that all my clothes were, we were naked because oh all our clothes floated up like ribbons. And so, and but we also saw many luggages, suitcases, oh, hundreds of them strewn all over uh, the passage in front of us. And a man with white hair with a silver, beautiful silver shotgun jumped out of nowhere, pointed the gun at my father's head. And we raised our hands up again. And I show the two letters, one for my sister-in-law and one from my, um, from my aunt's church, Cry Church of Oak Brook in Illinois, also wrote the same thing. Help these people. We will be responsible for them as soon mm. as they arrive in the U.S. And so he waved us through. And as we walked through that, a passage that lead to another gate. Uh, we took some clothes off the suitcase. I lost my shoe. I had only <laughs> one one sandal. I mean, it's crazy to to do all of this running and climbing uh, with sandals. Anyway, so we did. We cover our body quickly and walked through that gate, and then we saw even a bigger crowd, a lot more people there, and uh, they are most of them are foreigners. Uh, and then we also found out that family of foreigners, you know, and uh, um, uh, American servicemen were there as well. And um, we were waited for a long time. But then I realized that two gates, uh, that only one gate is open every now and then. And so I asked the people in line, we were like all the way in the back, uh, how come the other gate is not open? And they said, that's great has never opened. We've been waiting here for two days, but only this gate opened. So by almost nightfall, we were able to be a lot closer to the gate. And then we heard some amazing, beautiful Christmas music. And we said, we talked, we said, we told each other, American people are so nice. They even play some music for us <laughs> while we're waiting. <laughs> but we didn't know that in the documentary Last Day in Vietnam, that was the sign 
that any uh, American servicemen or any foreigners or uh, press journalists, if they hear that song, they, it means that they have to go to their uh, to to their escape route immediately. Oh wow! Because they would have like a very short time before the American people start shuttling people outside uh, away, right? Uh, wow. So. Uh, but anyway, so, but then I kept looking at the other gate. And so I told my parents, and, and this gate was, by that time, every time they tried to open the gate, the crowd would come and force it open. And there was a swimming pool in between the two gates as well. So uh, I told my family, I told my parents that maybe we should wait in the other gate. There's no line there. But we made it over there. We were first in line. And then uh, some other people joined us, a young couple and a family. And then we saw another white hair man on top of the rooftop uh, with the walkie-talkie. And we waved at him and we said, we good, we good. Let us go, let us go, we good. And I still remember his, his motion of bending down, talking to the big walkie-talkie. And then the soldiers on the other gate rushed over to our gate, opened the 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 gate, the unlock the gate. Immediately, the huge crowd on the other side of the swimming pool, they either jump into the swimming pool or they ran uh, around. And so our family got through, the young couple behind us got through, and two little children of the family behind us got through, and then the soldier had to lock the gate Mm. again. The children were screaming, crying and the parents said take them i mean the family said take them take them uh, so my parents and the couple behind us dragged the kids uh and then we walked along the um uh, what you call that um fire escape to the mm-hmm. rooftop and from there we got in this helicopter and wow. i remember when i heard the clang shut of the the door of the helicopter door, the soldiers told us to lie down, lie down. And uh, we held on to the webbing inside the, the helicopter. Yes. But when I heard the clunk shut, I it's all dark. I thought to myself, I got to live again. Wow. I got to live. And then I heard the whirring of the um, blades. Yes. I stood up and the traces coming up at us like, like it lit up the whole inside of the helicopter. So there were lots of shooting uh, coming to the helicopter. But we took off and they landed us on Midway Aircraft Carrier. Ayn mentions in her comments a documentary called Last Days in Vietnam. The film is directed by Rory Kennedy and I highly recommend that you check it out as it captures dramatically much of the chaos that Ayn describes here. Included is the vignette about the Christmas music. Word went out to all U.S. personnel that if and when they heard Bing Crosby's White Christmas on the radio, it was time to start the evacuation. And think of how jarring this would have been in April in Vietnam, a time when temperatures routinely reached 100 degrees. The film also helps underscore just how lucky Ayn and her family were to be among those included in one of the airlifts when so many others 
were left behind. She ended this last section by saying that Americans are good people. And it's true that many of these helicopters, as well as ground vehicles like vans and trucks, were driven by Americans who were under orders simply to get out, but instead made extra trips to rescue as many South Vietnamese as they could. Ayn told me a lot more about what happened to her once her helicopter landed on the USS Midway. They were clothed and fed by the American military and prepared for entry into the U.S. by the Red Cross. A church group helped them settle in Oak Brook, Illinois, and Ayn got her college degree in Michigan. That Ayn's family survived and made it to the U.S. was in many ways a miracle, and she's been determined ever since to make the most of her opportunities here. Our conversation then moved a few more years ahead, where Ayn, now married to an American, left a retail job at Lord & Taylor and got a job at an exciting new startup, People Express Airlines. She got the job on a Friday. Monday morning, I was in training at Howard Johnson Hotel in Newark, <laughs> New Jersey. And at that time, Newark, New Jersey was a dump. Yeah. And Terminal C, where we were, was like a bad, ugly, poor bus depot. Yeah. And that's how we started. And that was the best time of my life because my the people I work with are so wonderful. Do you know that uh, f almost 50 years later, we still talk to each other via Facebook at, wow. least, at least once a week. And one of my buddies, um, I really love the guy. His name is, uh, oh my goodness, Polk. Rob Polk, P-O-L-K, Captain yes. Rob Polk. And so I told him, my, so he said, I'm, I heard you're from Vietnam. I said, yes, I'm from Vietnam. And, I, and, he, and, and he said, this, he asked me the same question you did. Tell me how you left Vietnam. So I told him the story. And then I also told him there was, uh, I don't know why, uh, maybe they didn't want us to come to the aircraft carrier because they almost beat up the pilots. And Rob screamed, jumped up and down. And he said, that was me because they came, they, I was supposed to pick up the Delta company. I think he said Delta because they were the one that still at the rooftop of the American Embassy, they barricaded oh themselves because we used the, our helicopters to transport as many Vietnamese out of the Embassy as possible. Wow. That was our dear Rob Cook and he passed away some years uh, ago. If you're my age or older, you probably remember People Express Airlines. They were one of the great business disruptors, taking on the established airlines with slash prices and a frugal, informal approach that gathered major attention. One can only imagine what the work atmosphere was like there, and it's not surprising that they're all staying in touch. And how about the story of Robert Polk? Yet another one of Ein's that shows the improbability of so much of her life. Next, I wanted Ayn to talk about some of the amazing work she's done trying to give back to others and to make a positive impact on the world. After people, I think at People Express, I was so inspired in impact. You know, what do we do? We mm -hmm. have to make an impact. Um, the investor of People Express Airlines, you know, it made us become gloriously successful, actually, 
uh, Harvard and MIT still study people express to this day. But it's yeah. also they they also the investors also made decision that made us to become to have a spectacular failure. Anyway, yes. so but it's I always remember the happiness and the joy of families who never could travel before. Uh, that they could travel, mm. students travel the world, family could see each other during the holidays. I mean, uh, I told, I'm always so inspired by that. And I realized that this is America. We will never die of starvation. I mean, it happened to mm. a few people, but I can always have food in my stomach and a roof over my head. And so I'm thinking, I have always thought of having my career in such a way that it will make impact. And so I work with refugees actually uh, most of my life, even though I help the startup of People Express Airlines, Scanning America, uh, and uh, uh, and several others new, new startup. But I always wanted to do my own startup that make impact, especially for refugees. Um, and I'm uh, working for the Southeast Asian Coalition for more than a decade, also one of the top five things, top best decisions I made in my whole entire life, you know, yes. uh, where I could, uh, we, oh my goodness, we had an amazing staff. They made the work run like a well-oiled machine and it's always so much fun. Uh, we serve more than 20,000 client contacts a year and we help thousands of people to access housing, jobs, in, uh, education for at least three generations. And it's not just a refugee from Southeast Asia. We were so honored to serve people from Africa, South America, um, you know, other parts of the world as well. Incredible. And it seems like, if I read it right, a lot of your generosity, I think, springs from what you also have, which is an incredible sense of gratitude and about all, all kinds of things in life and also about this country that you're now in. And I have a a quote that I read of yours that I really appreciated, which was, you said, you know, America spoils me with freedom because even when I was in Vietnam, I always hungered for freedom. You see, America gave me the freedom to be who I am and also gave me the resources so that I can get what I want. Also, American people gave me an amazing example of giving themselves to others. One of the reasons I like that quote, Ayn, is that I think that many of us who were born and raised in this country take so much of what you say there for granted. Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, I think we forgot that uh, two things. Freedom is one of the most honorable things that make us that, that of, of our own humanity. Uh, without freedom, what are we? Really, mm. really, what, what, who, who can we be? without our freedom of expression, freedom to love, freedom to read and write, uh, but most importantly, freedom to help others. This is the second mm. part that I want to share with you. So freedom is important, but the freedom to help others, the ability to help others is truly a luxury, a blessing. We mm. are so damn lucky to be able to help <laughs> others. Many, yes. many people in the whole entire world wanted to help others, but they can't. They don't have the resources. Amazing. They, they life so hard for them. It's like a, a zero-sum 
situation, you know, the pie too small for them to even help. And so there's two things that American people, and I'm sure other people do too, but I want to talk about America because I benefit so much from this country and 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 her people. So I would say the ability to help other people is a luxury. And actually, that come to the third part I want to tell you is that once we're able to give others for some weird, weird way, mysterious way, we even become more powerful to change the world. Mm. You know, when we don't yes. think about yeah. ourselves, we it is it is a mystery. So if you again, if you connect the dot, uh, I've done all of that for the Vietnamese, for the refugees in Southeast Asia. And in the in uh, you know with the, with my job in Worcester, uh, and then I happened to go to MIT because I made a very stupid uh, challenge with the youth. Uh, we had a wonderful youth program as well, and I this meeting we have like fifty youth show up, and they I said if you guys uh, at that time I was sixty four years old. I said I'm sixty four. I'm yes. too old. I'm, I don't have money. I'm not good enough. Uh, if I apply for a school, you should too. Because they said they're too poor. They're poor. They don't, uh, they don't have money. They're not good enough. And so I challenged them. You're still young. I'm older. And if I do it, you should. You could. And they said, okay, auntie, if you do it, we did it too. I applied. And I got accepted at MIT. Do you think I could uh, turn that down? I could, <laughs> you know come back with my, my, my challenge, I couldn't, I couldn't. Right. So uh, if you look at Zillow, uh, the two times I had to sell my house on the market. I had to, <laughs> I almost sold my house twice so that I could pay for my MIT program, right? It's a, an MBA, two years of MBA program. After that, uh, not, um, 20, uh, December 2022, I left my job so that my, my staff, wonderful staff, take over and lead the organization and become leader of the community and the organization. Uh, I was invited by Harvard, of all places on earth. I was invited by Harvard to join their Advanced Leadership Initiative Fellowship Program. And I said, you know, I'm so torn. I want to do this so badly, but (laughs) I am starting a social impact company that will provide jobs and economic development for refugees in refugee camps overseas. And so I, I, you know, I'm so torn with these two decisions. And Mike from Harvard said, we want you and your project. Would you come with your project? So uh, I'm saying the more I give, the more I get. It's, 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 it is a math, I'm a math major as well. It's a mathematic <laughs> equation. The more you add on this this side of the equal side, the more you will get to add on the other side of your equal side. Incredible. Wouldn't you agree with me? Yes, I agree. I am no math whiz, but even I can see how Ayn's calculation works. And we all can see how Ayn's background continues to fuel her desire to give back today, especially with refugees with whom she can so closely relate. I appreciated what she had to say about the importance of freedom and was really struck when she said that in some places, you don't even have the freedom to help others. 
And how about applying for MIT's MBA program in her 60s? Ayn is the definition of a lifetime learner, and I wanted her to talk some more about that in our final segment. So you got your MBA in your 60s. Um, I won't say your age, but... Yeah, feel free to. I'll be 70 in March 2024. Okay. So you're about to turn 70 and you're back on a, on a, you know, prestigious college campus studying, learning and doing a startup. So can you talk about your thoughts on, and as we all get older, how you stay so stimulated and active and involved? You know, um, my husband shared with me uh, a story about this man who's supposedly the oldest, but also very healthy. And I will provide the name later. And it's a wonderful interview, but the oh, the one sentence that he said that uh, helped me, that really stood out, uh, it said, um, see opportunities, grab joy, and forget the rest. Mm. I think it's so important for us to, to live our life every day uh, in such a way that we can use whatever we have uh, for others. I think the contentment, should be, um, okay, let's put it this way. I believe in the super being out there who gave us amazing gifts. So each one of us has some gifts. Let it be being able to read or write, to teach English second language, to invent some amazing stuff. And if you don't use it, uh, the gift could be rusted. And if it's rusted, Mm. it is very annoying and uncomfortable. I mean, it it will make us restless, depressed, and sure. feel very unsatisfied with our own life. And I really firmly believe that once we use our gift for others, we will not become restless. We will become more energized. We have a purposeful life. Um, and the more gifts we give, the more gifts we got back. So the, that's a cool thing about this mystery with my back of gift never been empty actually it's getting bigger and bigger and i'm i'm not carrying this huge bag of gifts i'm riding on it like a, i'm riding <laughs> on a dragon yes that's a great image and as we near the end of our time i'd like you to talk more about this project that you brought with you to harvard because it's your latest thing so what are you working on today yes so um so it is a clothing company using my husband wonderful talents and experience in the clothing industry. He teaches at the Rhode Island School of Design uh, mm. with uh, pattern makings and designing and tailoring and fine sewing techniques uh, and, uh, and also using my skills in designing and working with refugees. And I realized that uh, my job at the, in, in Worcester, and even though we help, you know, for three decades working with refugees and ethnic minorities overseas, what we do is just a little bandage. So mm. Harvard and MIT helped me a lot to have a vision into making my ability to help other people at scale. So we are starting in the middle of fundraising, starting this cl- wonderful clothing company that uses sustainable eco-friendly materials and timeless design from uh, Philip and me, but all of the labels, you know, the annoying little thingy on the back of your, at the collar of your neck that you cut yes. it off because it's so annoying. Well, yes. it's all hand embroidered and hand woven 
uh, by refugees in the refugee camps. It's small, it's easy to make, uh, and if they have to run, like we just came back from uh, the refugee camp in Burma, in in, in, uh, in Burma, um, they, the government bombed the refugee camp because the rebel took shelter in there. And so the women would run, uh, and the first thing they grab is a pot, and they would put our, we, the fabric, we cut into a small square, like a business, business cart square, needles yes. and thread. That's how they earn money. And so, so I'm thinking if we sell, right now we're able to provide economic development for 27 families right now. And wow. we pay 2,000% more than a regular uh, machine-made tech that Philip and I used to have. But we, we have to be purposeful with our social impact mission. The work of the refugees for the label is the only way that we make sure that our company exists. So the mission first, you know, and then the rest we will, we will come, will fall together in terms of profit margin and all of that. Sure. Um, so that's what we're doing. And can you imagine? So it will not just be for my company, I'm 55. And I'm hoping that all the companies, all the fashion companies will join us and, and contact, contract the refugees overseas to do this. And it could create a really big chaotic issues, right? Like opening a can of worms. People will make poor, poor, poorly made stuff. And so right now, uh, we are working with um, Collaborative Fund of New England to figure out how to create cooperative business models inside the refugee camps so that the refugees will have their own selves of co-ops in the refugee camps. And they will be the one that said how much we're going to have to pay them. And they the one that control the quality. Wow. So, so you're... I-55, would, your group would make the, the tags and then sell them to, to clothing manufacturers who would put the tags on their clothes? No, we make our own clothes. You do everything. We make our clothes in this country, actually. We made our, our clothes and then we use the tags. I see. For our clothes. And our clothes will not, I, I'm saying that our business, our clothing business would not exist without the label made by the refugees I because see. it have to go hand in hand. Got it. And hopefully all the company will do the same. Incredible. So you are, let's see, it's uh, you're almost done. You're, you're approaching the end of your, your Harvard Advanced Leadership Initiative. And then when you leave, this will be your full-time effort? Yes, it will be. And I'm, you know, I'm so excited about this. I really, you know, my goodness, um, when I'm depressed, all I have to do is go to my refugee community that I serve. The very second they saw my face, you know what they did? Took the phone. <laughs> Auntie's here. You have any leftover? Bring the food. Auntie's here. Wow. Wow. So that fills your, your bag of gifts, your dragon bag of gifts. You come riding in and you ride out on an even bigger, bigger bag. And they, okay, so I left my organization. Two of them started, two of our leaders in 2023 
in their 30s started their own nonprofit. Wow. And I said, did you see I work 24-7 just to raise money, freaking raising money 24-7. <laughs> Don't you think it's tough enough for you to not wanting to do it? They said, no, that's exactly what we want. Wow. Well, Einvu Sawyer, this has been an absolute pleasure. I know how busy you are. I can, we can all tell how busy you are. And we just, I can't thank you enough for your time, your enthusiasm, and the great example that you set for so many of us, especially in this country, who take for granted the many freedoms and opportunities that we have. You're a real inspiration. I thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. Take care. Bye-bye. I love the image of Ainz riding on a dragon with her big bag of gifts. And the clothing company she and her husband started is a great example of social entrepreneurship, making clothing products that people want and sourcing a small but important item, that annoying tag, by employing refugees and paying them 2,000% more than they might normally expect to make. And to think that all of this happened because Ainz and her family were among that lucky few who managed to escape Saigon in those chaotic days at the end of April in 1975. It's really quite a story. I hope you enjoyed this Blue Sky conversation on the remarkable life of Ein Vu Sawyer. If you enjoy uplifting content like this, consider subscribing to this podcast and follow the Optimism Institute on social media. Until next time, I'm the founder of the Optimism Institute and host of Blue Sky, Bill Burke, and I thank you for listening.